Good morning. It's good to be back with you this morning. I uh, not here the last two weeks. I probably came out the gate a little strong in the first service. About gave out, so I told myself I wasn't gonna we're gonna take it easy during this service, the singing part, and then Scott busted out that Psalm 34, and I was screaming over there. So we'll see if I make it. So glad to be back with each and every one of you. Thankful over the last couple weeks for Jason Hodges, Lee Clamp, who came and preached for us. Jason, Psalm 42, Lee, Psalm 22. Both of them representing longtime partnerships with our church, with Jason in Boston, Lee with the South Carolina Baptist Convention. So we're thankful for those partnerships. Excited to continue to partner with both of them to see what God will do in the advancement of the gospel through us together. So we're thankful for them. As we conclude then, this morning we'll get to the end of our summer series. Believe it or not, summer 2021 is almost over. And uh, getting to the end of that, we're going to go to Psalm 34. Let me remind you, it's already been noted, next week will be what we term our launch Sunday or promotion Sunday. It's exciting Sunday, hopefully, as school is coming back. Many of you who have been gone, maybe be back with us. We're excited about that. It's a great opportunity next week. If you're not involved in one of our life groups to get involved, to jump in, one of the main ways that we do discipleship and life together here is through our life group. So we'd love for you to take a look into that next week. It's an exciting time as we gather together. And as you've heard, we'll be starting a sermon series from Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10, putting on the full armor of God. I'm happy and excited to be looking toward that. Today, I really love Psalm 34. I'm thankful to be able, uh, God is good to me as a pastor. Not only that you are here and be able to pastor great people like you, but he gives me a great word like this to be able to preach. And so Psalm 34, I want us to begin this morning just simply by looking to one verse as we begin. I'll be preaching from the entire Psalm, but I'll just read one verse, which I think summarizes all of what David is doing and saying here in Psalm 34. And that is verse eight, where David is singing an invitation to the people. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him. Let's pray as we get started this morning. Father, we thank You for Your Word. It's good to us. And God, you have been gracious to us in not only us giving us your word and helping us to hear it preached, to read it for ourselves, but also to sing it. And so, Father, I thank you for being able to sing your word this morning and the truths of Scripture together as a people. What a, what a privilege that is. And every time we gather, God, help us not to forget the privilege that we have to be able to be together, gathered around worship for you, your word, and your truth. And so, God, now... Take this word and apply it to our lives. Help us this morning, Father, to see you for who you are and all of your splendor and majesty and glory. Help us to rest today, to rest today, Father, in your goodness and graciousness and kindness, knowing that when we call, you hear us. And so, God, we 
place everything at your feet, all for your name, all for your glory. Work in us now through your spirit. In Jesus, we pray. Amen. I was told recently that I was born and raised in the late 1900s. Some of y'all get that. Some of y'all were born and raised in the mid-1900s, so don't laugh too hard. And I'm reminded of how interesting it always is just in the last 30, 40 years of how many things have changed and are different. And so having conversations with my kids and their friends and everything else just the other day, uh, the question comes up, what did you do before cell phones? Well, I told them about the original text message. Y'all know you write a note on a pad and place it by the coffee pot and hope mom sees it. And that blows their mind. How did that happen? You know, you write a note telling them where you're going, what you'll be doing, where you'll be at, and you better be there when they finally call. Well, how do they know how to call? What do they do if how you, how you have cell phones? Well, we had phones, you know. We had a thing called the phone book. And as a person who takes, you know, my ability to take things and describe them for people to understand, I had a terribly hard time describing a phone book. It's a book with everybody's name in all of the town you're in and they're in alphabetical order so it's like five pages of smiths y'all know alphabetical order and you have to look them up and if you're wondering if that's the right one then hopefully they got the address beside it and then you just start calling and see is such and such there wrong number such and such there till you finally find it it was hard for me to describe that you know it was hard for me to get them to understand. It's hard for me as I looked through the Olympics this past week. And back in my day, you had one channel and just watched what was on. Now there's like 47 channels for the Olympics, and I feel like I missed everything. We had three channels. We didn't count the fourth one because that was PBS, and that doesn't count. That's what you watch at school. So we only had three. Now, what I didn't know is that times were simpler, but there are some things I really do like. What, what the recent times, especially with how TV works now, that I truly love is I've found my love for documentaries. You know, I used to think documentaries is what they put on, the teacher put on when they didn't want to teach, and they just roll that TV in there, you know, and have it there, plug it in, hopefully it worked. And so I, I, you watch documentaries to learn about something that it was a different time. But now you have documentaries at your fingertips, right? So you can watch documentaries anytime. Anything you want to learn about, there's a documentary about it. You can go, you can watch it. And I love documentaries. And one of my favorite parts of documentaries, having invested in the whole thing, is that little piece at the end that tells you what happened after. You know, not all of the stories documentary worthy, but they got that one little piece, you know, after it, they got happily married and everybody's great or his life fell apart and he's in prison. So you had whatever happened, you get that one little sentence at the end. It just tells you what happened after the story. And I feel like sometimes when we look at scripture, we often see things like this in our own life, having, like I said, grown up and, and going to mission friends and training union and Sunday school and all these other things. You learn about the documentary worthy stories in scripture, you know, they tell you about those ones that, that are the documentary worthy, but there's a lot in there that happens after it sometimes that we don't learn about or maybe haven't known unless we've read it. And Psalm 34 reminds us of that bit after the documentary. It's kind of the rest of the story a little bit here with David. If you look in Psalm 34, it says, this is a Psalm of David, right at the beginning, part of the text, but not a, not a part of the Psalm, but a part of the context that the, the psalmist gives us. When he changed his behavior before Abimelech so that he drove him out and he went away. So here, 
It gives us a little context. And what I want to do is to spend some time in the context of this psalm this morning, if you allow. Maybe a little bit more time than normal, because I think the context of this psalm sets us and helps us understand what's going on in the psalm and the importance of it. If you remember the story of David, the documentary-worthy story of David, here is one who Saul was king of Israel, but God had taken favor off Saul. Saul was the king that the people wanted, but he was not a king that was faithful to God. And so Saul was one who had taken favor off, and, and, and God comes to Samuel, and he says to Samuel, how long are you going to mourn over Saul? It's time for the new king. So he sends him to the house of Jesse, and Jesse's got like seven sons. So he, he goes through all of them, and he says... The king's not here. Where is it? You don't have another son. And Jesse, I got another son. He's this ruddy little kid out there in the fields taking care of the sheep right now named David. Bring him in. And God says, that's my one. Some ruddy little teenager. That's the one who's my king. And so God teaches Samuel. I don't look. God doesn't look at the outside. He looks at the heart, right? Even in this passage. And not long after David is anointed king there by Samuel, the war breaks out. And David's brothers go off to war. They're at the front lines. And Israel is facing off against the Philistines. And there the Philistines have come. And, and David hears about it. So David is sent by Jesse with some sandwiches and some snacks to go to the front line to feed his brothers. And so he heads out to feed his brothers. And when he feeds his brothers there, brings them the sandwiches, this one giant comes out. David just happens to be there. Now we recognize nothing in Scripture just happens, but just for purposes. Not, now y'all understand. David happens to be there at the right time and he hears the Philistine come out and the Philistine comes out and doesn't just mock the Israelites saying y'all are all scared anybody want to fight me you bunch of sissies he doesn't just mock them he mocks the Israelites God not only are y'all scared and none of y'all want to fight me but my God our gods are greater here and yours is a wimp and so David hears this and goes what y'all going to do about it? You know, y'all going to let him talk to us like this. David does it, this ruddy little teenager, and they look at David. David, are you serious? Look at that guy. He's a giant. That's, that's Goliath. And so here at this point, David says, I'll fight him. Let's go. And they all laugh at David. And he's like, no, nah, I'm serious. And they all laugh at him again. He's like, no, nah, for real. I will do this. So, okay, let's make fun of him. And they put on the armor. It's too big for him. David casts it off. Uh, the Goliath is out there laughing at him, right? While they take off the armor, David says, I got this. He goes, grabs a couple rocks. Y'all know the story. Puts a rock in the sling, bops him upside the head, pulls the Goliath's sword, chops his head off, holds it up and said, now who's God's greater, right? That's a good scene, right? That's a good scene. Now who's greater? And then David goes before Saul and the scripture says he still has Goliath's head in his hands. And there Saul looks at David and David said, I got, I mean, Saul says, I got something on my hands here. This is interesting. Saul recognizes David and how he is bravery and other things. So Saul quickly then pulls David close, realizing that David could be a threat to him and his authority. Saul starts sending David out to battle, just a young teenager, right? He did some great stuff with Goliath, but surely if we send him out against the Philistines over and over again, if we send him out against, he'll, he'll die in battle, it'll be over with. But every time he sent him out, David came back victorious. So much so that the people started singing. Saul kills his thousands. David kills his tens of thousands. Well, that didn't make the king happy. 
And so Saul began to plot to kill him. He threw a couple spears at David. David dodged them. He was pretty agile back then in his prime. So he, he, he dodges the spears and gets away from them, right? And then David's like, what's going on, man? What, why we, I'm, I'm fighting for you. And then, then Saul gives David his daughter, Michael, and he says, I'll have a spy in the house if I give him my daughter. And so he gives him the daughter, Michael. Michael falls in love with David and loves David there. Saul comes with assassins to kill him and and Michael puts a statue in the bed, puts some clothes on the statue, and then places goat hair on top. If that was me, it wouldn't work as well. I'm sure David has some. But places goat hair on top. They come in to kill him, and David's not there. It's just a statue. They thought it was fooled. She protects him. Jonathan, Saul's son, protects David from Saul and warns him of the threat of him coming. Saul gets more and more angry, and he is after David to kill him. David finally, having been protected over and over again, recognizes he's got to run for his life. So he runs to this place called Nod, right? Nob, N-O-B. And there he finds a Halimelech and, 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 and the priest, and he says, I'm starving. And he even gives him the showbread there from the, from the temple there in worship, and David eats. And David looks at him and says, the king is after me. He's going to kill me. I have nowhere to run. I have nowhere to go. Do you at least have a weapon I can use? And there the priest says, yeah, I got a weapon. I got Goliath's sword right here behind the pulpit, which would be cool if we had. But I, he, said, he said, I've got Goliath's sword right here. Do you want that? And David's like, yes, I'll take it. Best sword in the land. So David straps on Goliath's sword, and the priest says, good luck, buddy, but the king's after you. The priest is terrified that the king's going to find out. In fact, we find out a few chapters later that Saul sends assassins to kill all of them in Nob there, all the priests and everyone. He knows this is terrifying. And so he runs, and he runs, and he happens into the land, the kingdom of Gath, right? And there's a king named Achish. And David says, uh-oh, why? Because Gath is where Goliath is from, the great warrior. So here is David who cut Goliath's head off, has Goliath's sword on his hip, is now standing before the king Achish, the king of Gath, who wants to kill him. And so those guys come in and they say, hey king, here is David. Well, David does what any sane person would do at this moment. He starts acting crazy. Y'all get it? And there he starts acting like he's nuts. He writes graffiti on the wall of the city. He writes it on the gates where everybody would come in. He starts letting the scripture says he lets the spit run down his beard and acts insane. And he comes before Akish like this. And Akish, he's a king and he says, he says what we would expect him to say. I got too many crazy people in this city already. Send him out. I don't need another one. Y'all know how I feel about that. Y'all probably like, I got that. Send him out. I don't need another one. So now David gets out from Achish by the skin of his teeth and the insanity of his actions. And he's gone. David is chased after by Saul. He's chased after by Achish. He knows his life is on the line. And all he does at this point, the scripture tells us, is he just flees to a cave and he hides. And now, here's David. The story after the story, right? After killing Goliath and showing himself a hero and being faithful to Saul, but Saul hating him. Saul's ready to kill him. Achish is ready to kill him. And now David, the hero, is hiding out in a cave for his life. Hiding out in a cave for his life. And 2 Samuel, excuse me, 1 Samuel 22 tells us of this passage. And it says that David departed from the king 
Verse 1, escape to the cave of Agilent, and when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. So David's hiding in the cave. Everybody's trying to kill him. The king of Israel, the king of Gath, is trying to kill him. And David is lonely by himself, hiding in the cave, and his brothers and his fathers hear of this, and they go to him. But look at what it says in 1 Samuel 22, 2. Not only did his brothers and his father and all of the house go down to him, it says in verse 2, and everyone who was in distress, and everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him. Y'all hear that? I've been a pastor for 20 years. This sounds like a pretty good description of the church. That's a little simple joke, but y'all get it in a minute. You got everybody distressed, everybody in debt, everybody that's bitter in soul comes to David and they come to him, they gather to him, and he became commander over them. Welcome to your people, David. And there was about 400 of them all gathered in the cave, distressed, in debt, bitter, hiding for their lives looking for some meaning, looking for some hope. And what the scriptures tell us is is at that moment that David, who was commander over those distressed and debt and bitter ones, he's commander over those, he writes Psalm 34. You understand the context then? David's hiding in a cave with 400 some odd people who are distressed in debt and bitter And he says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. And with a crowd this size this morning as we gather in this place, I'm not a fool to think that there are some here who are distressed. We've had a rough couple years, right? We've had terrible news come to our families. We've had terrible situations that we've had to deal with. We've had struggles and we've had difficulties that have come. And we are stressed out and in many ways tired. We come here today just like that. I don't hesitate to think that there are some who come here today in debt. Not just financially, but personally. And I don't know about you, but but debt steals away our joy, doesn't it? It takes our minds to where that's what we think about all the time is what wakes us up in the middle of the night. How are we going to pay it? How are we going to deal with this? What's going to happen if we don't? Where is it coming from? That debt destroys and robs our joy. And there's some maybe even here this morning who are bitter. You've seen others succeed and you feel like you haven't. You've seen others have things you wish you had but never have come. And you turn bitter even in your own heart and that little seed may be small that's growing there but soon you know it will grow into an oak tree and take over everything i'm not a fool to think that there are many of us in here this morning who are just like those who were gathered at the cave with david and what does david say 
first, we will bless the Lord. The very first thing David says as he looks at his crowd, his, his uh, ragtag bunch who had gathered, the very first thing he says to them is we will bless the Lord. And not only will we bless the Lord today, we're going to bless the Lord tomorrow. And not only are we going to bless the Lord tomorrow, we're going to bless the Lord every day at all times. That idea of blessing the Lord is the same thing as worshiping him, giving our worship to him, giving our honor to him. And David says that's what we're going to do. And this is no new thing for us. This, we've seen this in the text. The scriptures tell us rejoice always. And again, I say rejoice. The first thing and the primary thing in our life that we must be about and we must be doing is worshiping God. It's what we were created for. It's what brings joy to us. So if you are joyless now, maybe it's because you have not given God top priority and place and worshiped him even in the midst of your circumstances, even in the midst of your difficulties. You see, what happens here is that David says it doesn't matter where we've been and what we've been doing. We are still going to be about what is primary and number one. It doesn't matter what we have gone through and what we have dealt with. What we are going to be about is that we're going to demonstrate today in the midst of this cave that our dependence and our trust and our hope is not in ourselves, but it's in God. And that in its very heart is what worship is. That's in its very heart is what we do when we gather in this place. It's why we take time out of our busy schedules every week. It's why we set aside this morning and this time to come together. Is because in the midst of it, we know what is primary for us, what is number one no matter what has happened on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. What will happen for us is that the worship of the Lord will be number one. David says this is where we begin this is ground zero. This is the place. Don't come to me and tell me all the excuses that you have that you won't worship, David says. Don't come to me and list out all the reasons you have for not doing it. David says, we will bless the Lord at all times. We will. And his praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul will make its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Being humble does not mean we never boast. Being humble means we boast in the right place over the right people. And the scripture says we recognize in humility that we're not to boast in ourselves. Look at us. I'll join me in the group. We're a bunch of distressed, in debt, bitter people. What do we have to rejoice in ourselves for? We will boast in the Lord who cares for us. We'll boast in the Lord who watches over us. We're going to boast in him and what we're going to do, David says, what we're going to do is we're going to magnify the Lord together. Now there's two ways to magnify things, right? You can take something that's really tiny, really small, that you can't really see, and it's out there. You know it's out there, but you can't see it. You can capture it in some way, put it on a little slide, slide it under and take a microscope, and you can take that which is tiny and make it just big enough so that you can study it, look at it, and evaluate it. You can magnify it to do it. That's one way. But here, I don't think that's what David's talking about. The other way is you can take something that's huge, Something that's massive. 
something that is glorious in many ways, something that, that is so big and so massive we can't even hardly get close to it, right? We can't even get there. Think about the stars, if you will. They are so big, so far away. All we can see is a twinkle. All we can see is that there. Think about that. But we can then take a telescope, right? And we can look through that telescope and take that which is far away and distant. Although it's great, although it's huge, although it's big, we can take that far away and distant and we can bring it close to us. That's what David's talking about here. God is magnificent. He's great. He's mighty. He's strong. He's incredible. And in many ways, he's so far distant from us, we just get a little glimpse of his glory, right? A little piece of his majesty, a little, a little picture of his splendor. We just get that. But what we do when we worship together is we magnify that. And we sing praise to it. And we take that what is distant and we bring it close. And the closer God gets to us through the magnification of the worship of his people the smaller our problems look over and over and over again. When we look at God and who he is and all of his splendor and all of his might, knowing that not only does he own the cattle on a thousand hills, so your debt looks small, knowing that not only does he care for every single one of us, so your afflictions even look small, for he is the God who's all-powerful, makes us, creates us, and sustains us. We bring him close to us our problems start to disappear. So David says, let's magnify him. Not our problems, not our difficulties, not our struggles. Let's magnify the Lord together. That's first. But not only we magnify, magnify him and worship him, we must also seek him, David says. Verse 4, I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. David gives a description of that which will become a prescription, if you know what I mean. It's a testimony. David says, let me tell you about what happened to me. He probably doesn't even have to tell them. They've heard the story of Goliath. It's passed through. Everybody knows. But you know when David steps out into that field, what does he do? He prays to God, you better help me now because there's a giant right in front of me. And the Lord heard his prayer and answered him. David sought the help of the Lord and the Lord heard him and answered him and David says that's my testimony that's a description of what happened to me but not only is it the description is what happened it becomes a prescription for how we are to live we're to go every day seeking after the Lord calling upon him and what has he promised us when we do that he will answer when we call he will answer verse 6 this poor man cried and the Lord heard him I love David's statement there. In fact, many ways I can't, I can't get past that verse and even consider myself. Who is Josh Powell? What, do, what have I done? What have I accomplished? Who am I that the Lord would hear me when I call out to him? Who am I? What have I accomplished? What have I done? I'm just a poor beggar here. And he's the king of kings and lord of lords. The king has no reason to hear the poor beggar, right? He's got no reason to stoop himself, if you will. But David says, so was I. I was just a poor kid, ruddy little teenager. I called out to the Lord, and he heard me. The poorest of us all, he hears us. And not only does he hear us, he saved me out of my troubles. He not only hear me, he saves me. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them, he says. If we seek the Lord, he saves us, he delivers us, he cares for us. Here he says, 
Those who look to Him are radiant in verse 5. And their faces shall never be ashamed. I think we understand that verse better when we understand the context of this passage, right? David is looking at 400 people who's gathered to him for some hope. And he says, first, we're going to bless the Lord. We're going to worship him. And second, we're going to seek after him. And when you seek after the Lord, you don't have to go around with your head hanging. You don't have to go around in sadness. Stress can turn our hair gray and our smiles into frowns. Y'all know what I'm talking about. But you don't have to walk around like that. We're not going to do that here because when we trust the Lord, he turns our mourning into joy. When we trust the Lord, he turns our sadness into happiness. When we trust the Lord, we know that no matter what may happen to us, our God has overcome it. And we trust him. We trust him. So we seek after him. And our faces become radiant and never ashamed. Never ashamed. I like what he says down in verse 10. The young lions suffer want and hunger. The lions, the king of the jungle, right? They should be able to get whatever they want when they want, top of the food chain. They suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Lack no good thing. The testimony of those who seek the Lord is constant and it's the same. Every time you hear the testimony of someone who sought after the Lord, what you're going to hear is that the Lord heard them. In fact, the Lord says he's going to obligate himself to us. If you ask, you shall receive. If you seek, you shall find. If you knock, the door will be open to you. In Christ Jesus, he has obligated himself to us. So if we call on the Lord, the Lord will hear us. Even this poor man cried and the Lord heard him. And so that becomes a testimony of us all. And not just the testimony, but the prescription of what we need, even in our worst times. Not only do we seek the Lord, we bless the Lord, we seek the Lord, we also fear the Lord. Verse 9, Oh, fear the Lord, you His saints, for those who fear Him have no lack. And what does he mean here? He comes down to verse 11. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? David is asking this question as a rhetorical question. All of y'all want good days, right? We've struggled. We've had some difficulties. Well, all of y'all want good days. Don't you want what is good? Don't you want good days ahead? We don't want to wallow around here in these circumstances. We don't want to find ourselves in this. We all want what is good. And the Lord says, here's how you do it. You worship the Lord, you seek the Lord, and you fear the Lord. And what does he mean when he says fear? Fear means we place ourselves under the authority of the King, the Lord himself. Verse 13, fear the Lord, keep your tongue from evil, your lips from speaking deceit, turn away from evil and do good, seek peace and pursue it. In other words, the Lord says, uh, David says, we're going to worship the Lord, we're going to seek him, and we're going to live for him. He's the one who sets our rules and standards, not anybody else. What's going to mark us as a people as we gather in this cave and we, we live together even in our bad circumstances, what's going to mark us is that we're going to be faithful to the Lord always. We're not going to use our tongues for deceit or evil. We're going to speak only good. And even though Saul is trying to kill me and kill us, we're going to seek peace and we're going to pursue it. David is saying we're going to be different from them. We're going to fear the Lord. We recognize he is our authority. We're going to be different from them. I say this all the time, and I'll say it over and over again. If you're a child of God today and you're seeking to live for him, then just know in 2021, as we move farther or further in time and space, we're only be going to become more weird and different. 
The world is going to see us because our values are different. Our trusts are different. What we, go, what we do is different. And so here David says, we are going to be different as a people. We're going to be different. We're going to fear the Lord. And listen to what he says. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them from out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. I like that last verse. Because as they gather in that cave, that's who he's talking to. Those who recognize there's no power in and of themselves. They fled from those things. They know that they have no strength in their own hands. They have no pride in their own heart anymore. They need someone to lead them. They need someone to point to them what is right and what is true. And David says, what is right and what is true is for us to live for the Lord and follow him. Even in the midst of our distress, even in the midst of our troubles, we're going to follow the Lord and he will hear the righteous cries of his people. He will hear them. So don't compromise a life lived well for the Lord, David says. Just because our circumstances are difficult just because our life is not quite where we want it to be or how we want it to be that does not mean we're going to live recklessly that does not mean we're going to turn away from god's statutes and his rules and his laws it means we're going to live righteously we're going to stay faithful to what he's called us to do ultimately this we can see this so often how difficulty and trouble may come to us. And after that difficulty and trouble comes, we turn against the Lord thinking this was all Him or, or He has done this and we turn away from Him and start living in ways that don't honor Him or please Him. And we blame it there. David says there will be no blame. We're going to live faithfully, fearing the Lord. And finally, we're going to trust the Lord. Verse 19, Many are the afflictions of the righteous but the Lord delivers him out of them all. David does not say, when you follow me, everything's going to be hunky-dory. If you don't know what hunky-dory means, you figure it out in context. He does not say, when you follow me, everything's going to be perfect. When you follow the Lord, everything's going to work out. Y'all come to the cave. We're in the cave. We're going to bless the Lord. We're going to seek him. We're going to fear him. Now everything is going to go great. In fact, he says the opposite. He says, many are the afflictions of the righteous. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. But he says something that is the most reassuring thing in the scriptures. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. Not one of your afflictions will you take the glory with you. Not one of your difficulties will you take into the kingdom of God in heaven. Not one will you... Enter into the kingdom with. Do you understand what I mean? Just as Paul says, these trials and difficulties that we face are slight and momentary compared to the glory that awaits us. So David is saying here, your distress, your trouble, your difficulty, it is slight and momentary. The Lord will deliver you from every single one of them. Be faithful. Be faithful. And how does he do this? Verse 20 kind of seems odd. Out of the middle of nowhere he goes, he keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. That seems odd until you recognize what David's doing here, I think. 
David is pointing us to the way that God is going to crush our affliction and distress. That verse 20 is quoted in the New Testament. John 19, verse 36. Quoted whenever Jesus was hanging on the cross. And John says that not one of Jesus' bones were broken. Recognizing that crucifixion takes a long time, they went to break Jesus' bones, hoping to go ahead and and speed up the, the suffocation process, which is what you die of in crucifixion. Sometimes people will be crucified and they last on the cross for a week, if you will. And so they would break their legs so they couldn't get any more air and suffocate under the own weight of their body. And so they go to Jesus on Friday to break his legs. But what they didn't understand is that Jesus, no one could take his life. He willingly gave it up, right? So at the moment he decided to, he says it is finished and he gave up his spirit. He didn't need bones to be broken to die. He didn't need to speed up the suffocation. Jesus gave up his life when he was ready, willing to. And there on the cross, they go to break his bones and not one of them was broken. And John says that was to show us what the scripture said is true in Exodus 34. There on the cross, affliction slays the wicked. There on the cross, the one who was the King of kings and Lord of lords, humbled himself to death, even death. There he became distressed for us. There he put himself in debt, only to pay that debt off by the blood of his life. There he even took on our bitterness and our sorrow and all of our struggles. He took them on there. He was afflicted, Isaiah says. He was crushed for our sins. He paid the price for them all. So those who were afflicted, those who were distressed, those who were in debt, those who were in bitterness, now all of that has been wiped out through what Christ Jesus did on the cross. And David says, here's why God is going to take it all away. is because he's going to take it for us. He is going to be afflicted on our behalf. And so he tells the people in the cave, look to the one who's coming, who none of his bones will be broken. He will slay wickedness. He will slay all your stress. He will slay all of your affliction through his own life and death. Look to him. And this morning, what I'm saying to you, is while David is pointing his people to them, to to Christ coming, we of course can point to what Christ has done. Distress, debt, bitterness, you're in the right place. David summarizes all of this invitation when he says, taste and see that the Lord is good. David had just been hungry. He had just fled trying to find some food from somebody from somewhere. Surely as they come into this cave, 400 some odd. I try to feed a family of six. It's rough. You know, it's three times a day all the time. But David looks at him and says, the food that sustains us is not what we can make on a fire in this place. The food that sustains us is the Lord God Almighty himself. And taste and see that in spite of your bitterness, your distress, all the troubles and sorrows that have robbed your joy in life, in spite of all of that, the Lord is still good. The Lord is still good. And blessed are those. Blessed are those who take refuge in Him. My friends, it's important for us to recognize that many are the afflictions of the righteous. This life is not promised to be easy for us. 
The question I have for you today, though, is this. Where do you take refuge? Don't run to the caves of this world. Hiding out. Lowly. But be radiant. And run to the one. Run to the one who says, blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Run to Christ who has slain your afflictions for you. And find your joy there. David looks at the crowd and he says, we're going to worship, we're going to seek him, we're going to fear him, we're going to trust him. And so it is for us this morning. We find our refuge in Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this joy of being able to find our refuge in you. God, all of us need refuge. We're looking for some place to find comfort and strength and hope. We're looking for something. And God, your scriptures tell us that we don't have to look too far, that you're not hiding from us, that you are there. You're closer than our fingertips. We don't have to run to the caves of this world seeking to hide and, and, and hide out from things. We can run to the king of this world, Jesus Christ our Lord. And when we find our refuge in him, we are radiant. Father, those who seek you lack no good thing. And so this morning, my prayer is that everybody in this place is seeking after you. No matter what their troubles may be, no matter what their circumstances are, no matter what distress, debt, or bitterness may be even in their heart, that even now, Father, you would take those things and help them to realize that Christ Jesus died to free them from them all. And you would let them see the beauty of Christ. Flee to Him and take refuge in Him. God, help us through the power of Your Spirit to find our refuge in Christ this morning. If you're here today and that's you, distressed, debt, bitterness, all of the world seems to be weighing in on you, blessed is the man who takes his refuge in Christ. I'll be standing here in the front ready to talk to you about this, receive you for this. Flee to Christ and find refuge in Him. We would love to hear from you. If you want to join our church as a bunch of people who do not have it all figured out, have not understood everything in life, deal with stress, deal with debt, deal with bitterness, but we do know that our hope is found in Jesus Christ our Lord and we flee and praise Him. And we'd love for you to join us here as well. Let's stand together and sing.